Over the past three years, the American Constitution Society has been an integral part of my legal education. I am a student chapter co-president, a next generation leader, and this is my third student conference, and last, unfortunately. Um, the issue that first drew me to ACS is the subject of this final panel of our conference, uh, the importance of the judiciary and how it can provide a progressive force in the law. I am privileged to be introducing this discussion because of my deep concern over the future of the judiciary and because of my admiration for today's panelists. A panel of accomplished and distinguished judges will consider the future of the role of the courts in our country. In doing so, they will share their paths to the bench and explain their thoughts on how we, as budding progressive lawyers, can support the judiciary and its essential function. To that end, I am pleased to introduce Caroline Fredrickson, president of ACS, who will moderate this discussion and introduce our distinguished panel. Caroline has been president of ACS since 2009, and in that time, she has championed a progressive vision of the Constitution, helped grow ACS, and authored books, articles, op-eds on many legal and constitutional issues. In addition to serving as ACS's president, Caroline is currently co-chair of the National, Constitutional National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, a member of If One How's Advisory Board, and she is on the boards of American Oversight and the National Institute of Money and Politics. It is a great honor to introduce her to begin this important discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And uh, you know what really makes ACS a great organization is having great student leaders. So we thank you for that. Thank you for the very nice introduction. And I thank everybody for letting me have the best job at this convention, which is to moderate in this incredible panel. Um, um, I would say my dream of the judiciary is right here. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Brilliant lawyers, incredible judges, incredible thinkers, deeply compassionate people who understand what the role of a judge is. It's to use judgment. That's what judges do. Um, and so it's a real thrill to be up here because if there's any audience that really understands why courts matter and why judges are so fundamental to our vision of America, of America, of we the people. We read the Constitution, it starts with we the people. And that means an incredible amount, right? It's all about us. It's about other people in this country who join together and we decide the direction of this country through a democratic process, seeking justice and liberty for all. So it is with that in mind um, that I wanna, uh, before we get started, with this panel, I just, I wanna um, call on all of you who are leaders already. We often call you future leaders, but that's, that's not true, because um, you are leaders now. You are leaders in your law schools, you are leaders in your community. And, but I do want you to think about the future once you leave law school, um, and think about these wonderful examples of what you might become um, as you advance in your career. Becoming a judge is an incredible accomplishment. 
we need brilliant people like you to join these brilliant people on the bench to ensure that that vision of we the people is recognized, that we have a judiciary that is sensitive to the deep values of the Constitution of freedom and justice for all. So I want to just preface this discussion uh, with the very blatant uh, underlining of, the, of why we are having this conversation. It's, it's not just because I'm really excited to be up here with these wonderful people, although I am, because we're trying to actually uh, impress upon all of you a message, which is to take home with you, which is if you don't become a judge, that's okay, we'll forgive you, it's all right. Not everybody has to become a judge. Some of you become great litigators or public policy uh, advocates or elected officials, community uh, organizers or all sorts of wonderful things. But I want you to proselytize for the importance of a judiciary that cares deeply about those values of the Constitution that are embodied in those words of we the people. And I know your con law professors may not always have you read the preamble, um, but I'd say all of you have your little pocket Constitution, right? Yes. Please read that preamble, because it should be informing what you think about our Constitution. Um, so with that, um, I, I'm not going to um, give any long introductions to these judges because their accomplishments are so extraordinary um, that that could take up the entire time plus the rest of the evening and tomorrow um, before we got through much of it. So um, instead, I will, I will direct you to read the, um, the background materials that are in your program. Um, and then you can um, do further research and, uh, uh, on their extensive, wonderful um, uh, backgrounds. Um, but quickly, just so we identify them, you have Nita Earls, um, who's been a longtime uh, friend of ACS, has an incredible history of fighting for social justice, who is now a new associate justice on the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Very exciting. We have Carlton Reeves, who is a district judge at the U.S. Uh, district for the Southern District of Mississippi. Um, I would uh, recommend that you read some of Carlton's decisions. They're very informative um, and truly uh, persuasive. Um, we also have Pam Harris, who is on uh, the Fourth Circuit. Um, not far from here, and I know she was recently here speaking um, to the students at UVA. Um, she um, has long been associated with ACS and, in fact, is, uh, is a founding board member of ACS um, and a reason that we're all here today. And we have Judge Restrepo from the Third Circuit. Um, and if you want to see a career that has been built on fighting uh, for justice, you should look at his background. Uh, it's tremendously exciting to think uh, of the role of a lawyer into, um, into jurist um, and, and how uh, the importance of the practice of law can inform, inform your judging um, uh, with the very uh, deep values um, that he brought to uh, both being a lawyer and being a judge. So, um, you know, this is really exciting for me. I, I was just going to sit up here and let you guys talk, which is basically what I'm going to do. Um, but may, I'll start off with a question um, uh, to get it going. But I think one of the, one of the things that I think is, is most perhaps useful, for, not just for law students or all of us who are not judges, is to, you know, to hear from you sort of 
how did you do this? I mean, what was that, that what got you? Did you, did you decide, were you always, did you, were you born thinking I, like, like Elena Kagan? Did you, did you dress up in robes for Halloween? Um, you wanna be a judge from, from infancy or is this something, did somebody tell you you should be a judge? Was it a surprise? Anyway, I'd love to hear from each of you sort of how that happened. Um, and then we can get into like, what do you, you know, what's happened since then? But you know, tell us a little bit about your story, your path to the bench. Anita, why don't we start with you? We'll just go in down the... <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. I want to thank ACS for this opportunity. And um, I am one of those people who, no, I, I did not um, start out wanting to be a lawyer because I wanted to be a judge. Um, in, in actually, quite the contrary. I, um, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, a mixed-race family. My parents, uh, when they met, it was illegal for them to be married in the state where they met, so that's why we ended up in Seattle. But it was that, that concept of um, how important it is to be working for equal justice under the law that I saw in my family that made me want to be a lawyer and want to you know, be a civil rights attorney, represent communities um, that would be fighting for equal rights. And so for 30 years, that's what I did. I was a plaintiff civil rights attorney. Um, so how did I end up on the bench? Um, a couple of turning points I can point to. Um, and I, I did not have a clerkship out of law school. I went straight to Charlotte, North Carolina and worked with Julius Chambers' firm um, right out of uh, law school. So. The turning points came, I would say, first when um, President Obama was elected, and it kind of, to, it, to my mind, it was this moment of great promise and opportunity, and it seemed like, wow, a, 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 a little girl like me, who was the first one in her family to go to college, could, um, could possibly aspire to be a judge and be on the bench. And so, uh, in North Car I was living in North Carolina at the time, and uh, Kay Hagan, our senator, had an open process. I applied, and lo and behold, my name was on the list of people I, I was never actually nominated. But that, that was the first step. The other turning point really came um, with the election in 2016. Because that's when I had not so much hope and promise at the federal level, but a sense that if we did not find a way to protect our rights, you know, our state constitutions are a rich source of protection of individual rights, and if we were not, and, and understand I'm now, you know, much further along in my career, and in some ways, a greater sense of urgency. I don't have that many more years that, that I'll get to be a lawyer, and so how can I really, really make a difference in the time that I have left, in the climate that we, we're very clearly gonna have after that election at the federal level, um, turning to the state courts and at least preserving a little bit of an avenue there seemed really important. Um, so that's what uh, motivated me to run in, in for this uh, seat. And for a year, I was a full-time candidate uh, going around the state, making my case to voters as to why they should consider having me on their um, state courts. And, and I think that we will see in the near future that uh, state courts are an avenue for protection of individual rights. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that I can make some difference. But I also, I have to say this, it's so true. Learning things I learned at ACS conferences about the judicial selection process, about um, you, you've had panels on money in judicial races, all of that was very informative and very um, encouraging to me and, and made a huge difference to me. Uh, thank you. First of all, again, I'd like to thank ACS for inviting me uh, to be here. Uh, uh, unlike Justice Kagan, I didn't dress up as a judge when I was a kid. I remember 
uh, being in a play in the fifth grade had to dress up as a clown. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, but my path to the judiciary and thinking about being a judge probably came to me in late high school, actually, uh, but definitely an undergraduate at Jackson State University. I was a political science major with a pre-law concentration, and there we began to read in our judicial process class uh, cases that we would ultimately talk about in con law uh, here at this law school uh, where I attended uh, law school. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that I learned back then, and my conception of judges is that judges are heroes. Because in Mississippi growing up, but for the fact of federal judges, Mississippi would not be where it is today. Because every right that we got in Mississippi came through the pen of an Article III judge, whether it was the integration of the schools, reforms with uh, how we uh, imprison people at parchment, uh, voting and electing judges. All of those things came through the pen uh, of a judge. And so I knew what the power of the judiciary was. And so uh, being a student here at the law school, I knew I wanted to try to get a clerkship. Uh, I was not the optimum clerkship candidate uh, in the view of many of the persons here at the law school. Uh, but so I decided to sort of chart my own path. I figured that there would not be many UVA people who would apply for clerkships there in Mississippi. So I said I wanted to go back home. I wanted to be in Mississippi. I applied to uh, three judges there who I thought I had some sort of connection with. Uh, one of whom taught me at Jackson State as an adjunct fa uh, faculty member. The other was from my hometown. Uh, I really didn't know him, but I knew his relatives. I'd gone to school with his high school and stuff with his relatives. Uh, and the third one was the, a member of the state Supreme Court, the first African-American judge on the state Supreme Court judge. And my only connection with him in my mind was that he was African-American. He was the one who hired me. The other two I serve with right now. So, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so I knew I wanted to be a judge. So how do you do that? Well, you, you work, you talk, you take up causes, you, you, you be committed to your own principles. One of the things uh, that I did was a very active and became a member of the uh, Magnolia Bar Association, which is the Black Bar Association in Mississippi for you non-Southerners at one time. <laughs> black lawyers couldn't be a member of Mississippi Bar. But that uh, bar association still exists. And one of the things that we pushed during the years that I was president and stuff was diversity within the, ju the judiciary, uh, the lack thereof. Uh, and so when President Obama was nominated, Oh, excuse me, when he was elected, uh, the senior most Democrat in the uh, state of Mississippi was Congressman Benny Thompson. I went to Congressman Benny Thompson because I had worked with him in the past and had worked with him over the years. And so I told him 
I, I, I was frank. I said, look, Congressman, you got a new president. There's a vacancy that has not been filled because of what we have been advocating. And I said, I know, because I had worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I said, I know you think I might want to be the U.S. Attorney, and I might make a great one, but I'm hoping I'll make a better judge. <laughs> and so the process started from there. He recommended me to the White House, and there it was. One other detour is that, uh, you know, being committed to your causes, knowing not, not knowing where your past may lead you and all that, I too was inspired by Julius Chambers because my second year in law school, uh, I did a clerkship at Ferguson Stein Law Firm where I met Anita Hoskins. She was a young first year, second year associate teaching a young guy like me. And so uh, one of the things that's part of my resume is that the, the law firm itself, we created a law firm in its image in Mississippi because no law firm like that, that is a multiracial law firm, had existed in Mississippi uh, since the early, late 1960s. There no, had been no integrated firm. So we did that in 2001, excuse me, yeah, in 2001. And that's why I practiced until 2010. So that's how I get here today. Um. So I, I did not have a plan to become a judge. It was not really on my radar. Um, and when I think about my path to the judiciary, I, I think about it in terms of the people who sort of propelled me along the way. And that would, um, starting with my mom, who was a single mom raising four kids, uh, who put herself through law school at night. Um, and she, 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 there were no lawyers in her family. She was a first-generation college kid. But she had, and I, I think having sort of grown up in the, the times, um, in the 60s, she also had a sense, a very heroic sense of the law and what the law could do and how it could hold uh, powerful interests accountable on behalf of people who had less power. And she really taught us as kids. She graduated from law school the same year I graduated from high school, and I have three younger siblings, so we grew up in this. And she really taught us that... Um, you know, law is the thing that lets you stick up for people who need to be stuck up for and to do it without getting into fistfights because she took, you know, a hard look at us and was like, I don't think that's going to be your path. You're going to need something else. Um, and so she, you know, was one of the, an, an early woman in her law school class and she went, she practiced for a short time, but she, um, she did uh, family law for women and kids at a low-cost clinic and a little bit of criminal defense work for juveniles. And just watching her kind of commitment to her clients and what it meant to them to have just a lawyer in their corner, how that really did affect their lives uh, was extremely inspirational. And I feel like the biggest push, if I had to point to one thing that got me to where I am today, it would just be that example. And I mentioned I have three siblings. They're all lawyers also. One of them is also a judge. Um, <laughs> it's just we obviously found this extraordinarily inspirational. And then I feel like, you know, there were just so many people who invested in me along the way. I had the privilege of working with, um, particularly right after law school when it really counts, working for two amazing judges and then some incredible people at Department of Justice at Office of Legal Counsel who really taught me, you know, if you touch it, it has to be excellent. 
just because. It might not even seem that important, but whatever. It's your work. Make it your absolute best work. Um, and they taught me that that kind of rigor and precision and excellence in legal craft is 100% compatible with humanity and with empathy, that that's, those are not two different things. Um, and I learned so much from them. And then I just, I feel like I have colleagues who inspired me along the way and um, taught me the joy of working in an environment where you're invested in each other's success. And, and more than any particular job I had, I, f I feel like it was people like that who sort of pushed me toward this, this, um, this job. And I, I did not really plan for it, and I, I, I appreciate that it, it is something one can plan for. The advice I mostly give people is that if you want to be a judge, um, you should work really, really hard, because that's what you've got, is your, your reputation as a lawyer. And you should be really nice to people. Um, because that matters too, maybe not as much as it should, but it does matter. When you go through a, a nomination confirmation process, they're asking everyone you ever worked with, what was she like to work with? Was she okay? Was she respectful? Was she considerate? That actually, it probably should matter more than it does, but it does matter. And I pick those two things because those two things, if you do them and you don't become a judge, you'll still be really happy you did them, right? Like, what's the downside? You know, you'll be 80 years old, you didn't get to become a judge, but you were really nice to people and you did really hard, good work. There's just no, it's, it's kind of a no-lose proposition. So that is the advice I give people who are sort of aiming for being a judge. I never imagined I would be a judge. And quite frankly, I didn't want to be a judge for many years. I didn't trust judges. I was a public defender. I started my career. <laughs> at the ACLU's National Prison Project. And then I was a public defender in Philadelphia for three years, and then a public defender in the Federal Defender's Office there for three years. And then I started a small firm with one other guy, and we did civil rights work for about 13 years. Towards the end of my practice, I did three federal death penalty cases. And I came to the realization that this is really hard. It, it, it was hard work running a small firm, particularly doing this kind of work. And the, and the death penalty cases can be very difficult for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and then I started exploring my options. I had applied to be a U.S. magistrate judge and was rejected twice. And that's one thing. Listen, you're gonna be, you have to deal with rejection, right? And so I just keep applying. And fortunately, it, it, at one point, it worked out. So the first judicial position I had was a magistrate judge. And that's not unusual because a lot of magistrates, one of the areas where defense attorneys and public defenders can get into the federal judiciary because magistrate judges are selected by Article III district court judges. And they know your work because you're there all the time. I, I was in the federal courthouse in Philadelphia every day, several times a day, both as a federal defender and as a, as a defense attorney. So I, I knew the group that was going to ultimately vote on me. And, and I was very lucky to do that for seven years. Uh, I then decided that I'd apply to be a district court judge. Again, I had been rejected in, in previous attempts to become a district court judge. The politics had changed. President Obama had been elected. But more importantly, the state senators had changed. And Arlen Specter was no longer in charge of the Judiciary Committee. He lost to Pat Toomey. That was the big deal in my path to the, becoming an Article III judge because Arlen Specter made it clear he was never going to advance a magistrate judge um, for a lot of different reasons that we can talk offline if you like. Right? <laughs> so I, I, I and, and more importantly, I had somebody that was willing to help me. I met a guy, and I'm not going to tell you who he is, but I met him at my son's soccer games. We became fast friends. 
He is a man of considerable influence. If you want to be a district court judge, you need somebody who can call a U.S. senator, and more importantly, the senator calls them back, all right? So I found this guy, and he was extremely helpful, made, introduced me to the people I needed to, to meet. Um, I, I think that given the audience at that point, it was the, the Obama administration and the Pennsylvania senators, they liked that I was very involved in the community. I'd been very active in the Latino community in Philadelphia and a lot of different fronts, and as well as a lot of other civic engagement. And I was lucky enough to get through the vetting process and confirmed as an Article III judge. And I really enjoyed my tenure as a trial court judge. About two years into it, I got a call from the folks at the White House asking me if I would consider being vetted for the circuit. I said no. I gave them names of two other people that would have been much better at this job than I am. But the political reality of it was the window was closing on the Obama administration. They needed somebody they could confirm. So they called me back and asked me if I would be willing to be vetted. Given who was doing the ask, I said, sure. I never, I still don't fancy myself an appellate judge. And um, I was the last uh, Obama circuit judge confirmed and the only Obama circuit judge confirmed in 16. Uh, one piece, well, Look, guys, it's, it's, it's luck and timing, all right? <laughs> Not worthy of applause. But one piece of advice, guys. If it, don't be fixated on becoming a judge. There is great nobility in being a lawyer. You can really do powerful work as a lawyer. There are a lot of people that need your help as a lawyer. And I can't tell you how many lawyers I know that are really frustrated because they never got to become a judge. And they've kind of measured their career on the fact that they didn't get what they wanted. And that's really a tragedy. So those of you, it's great to aspire to be a judge, but don't, don't, at the end of the day, don't feel defeated if you didn't get there because there are a lot of moving parts and you really kind of have to be in the right place at the right time. Everything my colleagues have said is true, but a lot of it, folks, is, is luck and timing. Well, well thank you. Um, uh, although I would like some of you to, to want to be a judge. So <laughs> uh, put a little footnote on that. Um, so this is a great um, beginning to this conversation. I just did want to add that, um, uh, Julius Chambers also had a, a part in my life because uh, when I was in law school, he was teaching uh, as an adjunct when he was a head of LDF, um, and and it was hands down the best class I got to take in law school, which was we helped research and write sections of briefs for LDF, and so I you know I actually really encourage you in in, in law school. I know the substantive uh, you know the the legal theory classes are really important, but if you have a chance to take a class like that, I highly recommend it. Uh, was really wonderful. He was an inspirational, uh, inspirational person. Um, so I, I, um, I think we talked. We've we've sort of broached a lot of topics, um, and um, in part, I think you know something we could spend hours talking about, which is sort of the, the politics of judicial nominations. And I mean politics in not in a partisan way, but just sort of networks matter. You actually have to have people who are there in your corner fighting for you, who have relationships, and you know a lot of that. I wanted to say. It's not just for becoming a judge, but it's for everything you do in your life. Um, the network is really is really incredibly important, um, and this is this is part of it. Right? All of you will be there for each other as you go through your legal careers. One of you will be a judge, and the other one will be a senior partner at a law firm who will make that call to the senator and get your call returned. Um, some of you will be helping um, uh, with campaigns, get some of the others of you elected. So I just I want to emphasize that, that that sort of the thread here, you know, in part is it is, you know, there is a bit of a, you know, there's a, a part of it is being in the right place at the right time, and part of it is having the right network there to lift you up um, to make sure that you take advantage of that uh, right 
place and right time. Um, so I wanted to ask you all a little bit more specifically, um, were there, but were there key things in your background um, um, or are there things that, you know, you wished you'd had? It would have made it a little easier. But, you know, when you, when you look at the variety of kind of things that you've, you've gone through, you know, was it, how important is it to, um, uh, to have practiced in the court that you are <laughs> going to be sitting on or have at least an experience? I think there were a few, the few um, of the Trump nominees who were, were nominated to be trial court judges who'd never actually been in a trial court, so maybe that's something to think about if you want to be a trial court judge. Um, but, you know, pro bono experience... Um, civil, civic engagement, um, uh, et cetera. So can you talk a little bit about some of the professional life experiences that you know, were sort of really formative for you or that you felt like were, were something you had to kind of explain that you didn't have? And I, I don't know if anyone you wants to jump in. We don't have to go in order, but. Okay, they're all looking at me. Um, I, I think that I had an amazing opportunity. The first 10 years of my career, I was in private practice doing um, all sorts of different types of cases. So I did a lot of criminal defense work. I did jury, criminal jury trials, both, uh, well, felonies, mostly state court. I did family law. Um, I did all, all sorts of civil rights cases, so voting rights, employment discrimination, um, school desegregation. But that wide range of practice areas um, really made me well-suited to be able to make that transition from having been um, a, a practicing litigator for 30 years to then being on the court. And, and I think that now that, so I knew I was an unconventional candidate, um, but since I've been in the role, I really see what an anomaly I am. <laughs> and, and I think that, yes, and so when I think about diversity on the bench, I want all different types of diversity. So yes, race, gender, um, background, you know, socioeconomic status, all those things are really important, but so is diversity in um, areas of the law, experience, types of experience in areas of the law. And um, until I was elected, there had never been a civil rights attorney on the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Um, that we'd had previous African-American attorneys who'd done things like been US attorneys and been uh, district attorneys or public defenders. Um, but, but what I see is that if, if we have too much of an insider circle of, of people who you know, either were on uh, the Court of Appeals then going to the Supreme Court or um, who are you know, typically prosecutors, DAs, that, that there's not enough uh, perspectives. On, and it doesn't even matter what type of case, whether it's a complex business litigation or a criminal case, we all bring our different professional experiences to bear. And I'm one of those, I have to get other people to agree with me, unlike Carlton, who can make his own decisions. Um, so I think having those, having those diverse professional backgrounds is hugely valuable. So, uh, so I'm gonna say there's no one right thing, one area of the law, one right experience, um, but we, uh, collectively we need to make our uh, judiciary represent the rich diversity of the profession. Absolutely. Um, I do think that the district judge is the best job for any lawyer to have. I do. Uh, I, 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 I fundamentally believe that uh, because these other judges up here, they do have to get a second or third vote uh, to change a comma or delete the exclamation point <laughs> or not do the GIF or whatever it is. Uh, uh, but, but the 
How do you get prepared for it? And I think Judge Harris said it. It's about relationships and being excellent at everything you do, no matter what it is. Uh, if you're a public defender, be the best public defender, for example, because you will know that your colleagues that you're dealing with mostly are lawyers, which is a very finite group in any community that you live in. And for you female lawyers, that group is even more defined. It's lesser. There are lesser female lawyers in a particular area. And for African Americans, it's even less. LGBTQ, you know, lesbian, gays, it's even less. So you stake out your position, I think, in building relationships, never burning any bridges, for example. I still stay in contact with the people at Ferguson Stein because they have made, they have a hand in making whatever this is. Sometimes they want to say, no, I don't know that guy. <laughs> but, but it's about building relationships. I tell people all the time, particularly young lawyers and, and older lawyers, your reputation precedes you on every matter that you have because it's not your first one. It precedes you. And while that matter is being litigated, your reputation is there throughout that process. And when that matter is over, you have left your reputation there. So the first thing that anybody hears about you on that next case is the reputation that you left on that last case, or either the reputation that you started with, or either that reputation that you created throughout the process of litigating that particular matter. So it's so very important not to burn any bridges, building relationships. The practice of law does not have to be 100% antagonistic all the time. It does not. And so they will make calls and ask you about the people who were your co-counsel, but they will also make those calls to your counsel opposite. And if you cannot work with people, no matter if you're being nominated to be appointed or if you're running for judge, you will not win in either way if you have torn up all those relationships. Um, I'll say just a couple of quick things. So I, I spent about uh, 12 years in private practice as an appellate lawyer before I became an appellate judge. And I will say that turned out to be really handy. It seems kind of <laughs> prosaic, but jobs really similar. You know, writing a good brief is very much like writing a good opinion. Um, so that turned out to be very helpful. The part that I had not counted on being as helpful as it was goes to what Judge Reeves is saying. You know, as an appellate judge, I, I'm, I'm writing for three. I can't do anything unless I got someone to agree with me. Um, as an appellate lawyer, I was often writing for multiple liberal advocacy groups. And as some of you probably know, like herding those cats together onto one brief can require a fair bit of patience and um, nimbleness in drafting. Uh, and all that process, being able to get people who feel very strongly about an issue on sort of literally the same page, um, turned out to be incredibly helpful when I became a judge in a way I hadn't really thought through. Um, I really agree with the idea that we can't, no one judge can bring everything you'd want. The trick is to have a group of judges that has diverse backgrounds, both personal and professional. And then, and I, I think part of this is you need to have a court culture and structures around the court that allow you to take advantage of that. It doesn't do any good if like the only woman on the court doesn't feel like she can speak up in conference, right? You have to have the sorts of um, inter 
personal relationships and respect and the structures that facilitate that to make to, to kind of get the benefits of that diversity. But I feel like my court does a great job with that, and I learn a huge amount from my colleagues. And I would like to see, I agree, a little more diversity in professional experience would be a very good thing. Um, the last thing I will say in terms of preparation, you know, if you're going to be a judge, you're going to have to sometimes um, throw a punch is too strong, but you're going to have to stand up for what you believe in sometimes, even when people disagree with you. You're going to have to do it. And I feel like that's a muscle, and you have to exercise it. And sometimes I talk to students who think that the best way to prepare for being a judge is never to stand up for what you believe in. Just keep it quiet, keep a low profile. 100% the opposite. If you go through your life that way and then you become a judge, you can't do the job. You haven't learned how to stand up for what you think is right. That is the whole point of the job. And you can't learn that once you're a grown up. You have to start doing it now and you have to keep doing it and you have to, you have to exercise that muscle or you won't be able to do the job right. I felt very comfortable in the trial court um, because I was a trial lawyer. I mean, I, I tried hundreds of cases as, as a public defender and as a private attorney. So I was very comfortable both in the position of magistrate judge and district court judge. Um, and I, I know that the reason that the, the White House settled on me as a nominee was because they were getting a lot of pressure to nominate folks that had not been federal prosecutors to the circuit. And I had been a public defender and a civil rights lawyer. And I think in the history of the United States, there may be 10 public defenders that made their way to a circuit court. So the, the White House was looking for that sort of diversity, professional diversity is what you've heard of here. The fact that I'm Latino, I think that helped a lot the first time around with the district court. So, I mean, you know, you have to, but I, can't, I couldn't agree more with, with cultivating your networks and building relationships. And when that became really apparent to me was when I left the defender's office, being a federal defender is a tremendous job. And when I left that office and then all of a sudden there was no safety net and I had to get my own clients, I was lucky in that I had been elected to be the president of the Hispanic Bar Association. And so by, in my capacity as the president of the HBA, I was ex officio member of a lot of different boards with the, with the movers and shakers in Philadelphia, people I hadn't met before. And that was my first real clue that there's a big legal community out there you gotta plug into. Um, and, and you don't wanna be on the outside, you wanna be inside the tent. And, and that was when the, the value of networking really uh, dawned on me. It's a lot of food for thought. Um, so um, before I get into the, you know, the, the hard questions, which I think we'll go to about judging and how you do it, because um, um, we have a lot of students here, and some of them may want to be clerks. Some of them may have already applied. Um, but it would be great if you all touched a little bit on um, you know, sort of the value of a clerkship, what you look for in clerks, um, uh, and and how um, and and how can a, a a clerk be successful? Like, what makes a successful clerk in your chambers? Throw it open. Sam. <laughs> so all right. So listen, I will. I will. Um, cards on the table. I'm a little bit with Judge Restrepo on this. I don't think you should all be judges. It's there's. I, when I look at my career, I think um, I had a whole slew of amazing jobs. This one's amazing too but they were all really great. There's a lot of good things you can do out there. Make up your own mind about that. Now, you must all be law clerks. Law <laughs> clerks, absolutely go clerk. It's an amazing experience. Um, I, just, I, I cannot say enough. My two clerkships for me were absolutely formative, um, and I just think you should do that. Um, 
and you just learn so much. You learn about your, yourself and your own talents in kind of a safe space, because um, you're not exercising your own judgment yet, but you're building your own skills, and you learn what you're capable of. If it's a good clerkship, you will be amazed at how much you are capable of, and I just think it is a great way to start a legal career. So in terms of when, when I hire clerks, um, you know, I'm looking, obviously, for smart kids who can help me with the work. There's a lot I want to do in this job, and I can do more of it if I have people who can help me, force multipliers. Um, I look for people who are engaged in their communities. I really care about that. I, I just think you're going to be lawyers. You should, you should be engaged in the issues of your day and in your community. So I look for that. Um, you know, I care about diversity of all different kinds. Um, and I think a lot about you know, building a team of four. We just, I work in commercial space by myself in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, we're not in a courthouse, so it's just us, me, four law clerks, and a, and, and a wonderful judicial assistant. But it really matters that the kind of the chemistry work is kind of like a really bad dating service, sort of. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out how's this going to. So, so it's, it's sort of a complex formula, but I, I feel like it's working pretty well so far. And successful law clerks in my chambers you know, they, they work really hard, they're very professional, they understand it's a job, it will turn into a mentor-mentee relationship, but for the year we're in chambers, I really need some work out of these people. It is a professional engagement. I pay, well, I don't, but the government <laughs> pays the money and they show up and they do the work. It's not like a fourth year of law school. And, and I do think that the, the clerks who, who come into it knowing that are the ones who sort of hit the ground running the fastest. And um, I will, you know, the division of labor has to be clear. I sometimes get law clerks, it's, it's lovely, and we can, I can knock it out of their heads really fast, but it's, it's funny, they come in, and like their view of the way the job is gonna work appears to be that they will have um, uh, important intuitions about what's fair in the law, and then I will read the record in the case. And I'm like, no, 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 we gotta, get, we gotta work this through at the very beginning so we're clear on this. So that's what I mean by it's a job. Like your judge is gonna need you to do work and you should just be very aware of that and willing to do what needs to be done to make the work of the office as good as it can be. So I, I typically hire law clerks that have worked as lawyers. Uh, on occasion, I'll offer a clerkship to somebody while they're still in law school, but I'll insist they work for at least two years as a lawyer. And it doesn't have to be a big law. It can be a small law. It can be a public defender's office. But all, everybody that's clerked for me has worked as an attorney before they come to my office. Uh, I, 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 it's a great job. Nobody would have hired me as a law clerk. I, I'd never distinguish myself as a student. <laughs> you know, cards on the table. And, and, and that's important. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's important, that's what judges look for. I also look for students or lawyers that may be a little more mature, that aren't gonna be afraid to tell me I'm wrong because I don't need just somebody telling me I'm right. I appreciate the fact that the law clerk can, is mature enough to say, no, you've got it wrong. Let's take a look at it from this perspective. And I also look for diversity and commitments to social justice. Well, I think all of those things, um, I would say ditto to. I, I do want to see how the clerkship with me is going to advance what they want to do. Because I, I think that there are some, I, I mean, I, maybe, I'll, maybe state court is really different. I'm, <laughs> um, but I think that there are, there are some roles that having a clerkship will really help you um, get ahead on, and others that it's maybe not the right tools. Um, so 
and I'm very early in this, but um, I have, I de that was one thing that was important to me as I was um, picking my first two clerks, I only get two, um, was do they have a vision of how this is going to be meaningful for them um, in what they ultimately want to do in the law? And, um, but beyond that, I think I definitely want people who are willing to be independent thinkers and will engage, will not, because I think this can be a temptation to just, what's the form, I'm going to find the form, I'm going to do the form, and I really want them to um, care about every single case that comes before us and engage with the facts and put their best effort in, and creative thinking into it. Um, so that, I mean, that's, I think that's how they are most uh, useful and and. That, and I, so that together we can do the best job possible. Uh, clerking, clerking on the federal court is probably slightly different on the uh, state court, but as judges, all of us are bound by judicial canons and things. So our life, for the most part, is, is with these law clerks who we work with, and maybe our former law clerks, but it's because we detach ourselves generally from any particular lawyers because you don't want to have to recuse and all that kind of stuff. So for these people who you're going to be spending a lot of time with, you want them to be whatever you want them to be. I mean, if you want them to be obnoxious, if you like being around obnoxious people, you're going to have obnoxious clerks, I guess. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I want to <laughs> hire people who I can talk to, who I have great conversation with, who I like being around. I do, too, look for diversity, and that's all about who's the first hired and who's the last hired because that all plays some sort of role in it. Now, I told you, now, now Judge Restrepo probably should have applied to me had I been a judge back then because there are no disqualifiers other than, you know, you couldn't be just non-barrable. I mean, you could not have gone and commit a crime or anything out there. But I want you to understand that I take the position that, you know, I cannot in good faith in my own mind say that every law clerk who I hire must have been on law review because Carlton Reeves was not on law review. That every law clerk that I hire must be in the top 10%, top 5%, top 20% maybe. I, I, when I left Virginia, I got my degree and I left. I didn't look back. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I was. But I know I wasn't some of all of my classmates. So I do not allow that to disqualify individuals as well. The persons who I hired law clerks, I, did, I figured that they are going to be a part of my family. And my family now consists of my law clerks and my daughter, because I lost my wife in the last year and a half. So, so they are my family, and I expect that these people will challenge me, much like your family members do. Challenge your decisions. People who can write, people who can think, people who will question me about the things uh, that I do and bring a different perspective. Again, my perspective is a young man having grown up in Yazoo City, Mississippi, in 1970, starting the first grade with a group of white kids and being the first class in Yazoo City to start out integrated in 1970 after the Brown decision. 
that's part of my perspective. And so I won't, and I hire people all over the country from all over schools because I do want to bring in that different perspective no matter what you have. Thanks, and so I'm, I'm not going to get a chance to ask you any of the tough questions, so I'm going to, I'm going to leave it to the audience because I know they will. But I did want to just pick up on a couple things. One is um, really think, if you want to be a clerk, think broadly. Um, and I think the state courts are incredibly important, obviously. So federal courts, great, but state courts too. But also think that ACS is part of this process and your network, and we can help you. So if you have questions or you want some assistance or you want to you know help frame your your application or you want to know if we're friends with some judge or you know we have some insights you know you should definitely talk to us because we want to help you through that process it, it it's very meaningful if you want to do it not everybody has to be a clerk i don't know pam not everybody does not everybody has to be a judge but <laughs> but um but it is a, it is a great um and wonderful experience wherever you end up clerking. And the other thing I would just say is why ACS is such an important part of this for you is that as much as I love law schools, they're not always that helpful in the clerkship process, and they might not always be that helpful to the students who aren't in that absolute top level, or they might not be that interested in helping you look at certain other courts. Um, and, and I think there's a um, law schools are somewhat myopic sometimes in how they think about clerkships. Um, and, um, and so I would encourage you don't let that stop you. If you're interested, let us help you. Um, so with that, I know I am out of time, so I cannot ask. I have this really hard questions about how judges go about making decisions and so forth. But um, since, um, since there are all of you out there who have many questions, I know you're going to have better questions than I might think of. So let's turn it over to you. We have, I think, about half an hour. Um, so lots of time for questions. Um, so bring them on. Um, thank you. I was wondering about um, if an opportunity to work with a, a judge who is um, distinctly not a progressive. Um, I was wondering, I would assume you'd say yes, but should, should one take that opportunity? And if, if so, uh, you know, any ideas how to interview, how to um, make that working relationship work, and, you know, any special uh, ways how would you do good in that situation? <laughs> I'll, I'll go. Um, I mean, I would not, uh, I, I do not say yes lightly. Um, I think there are, uh, I think there are many, many excellent conservative judges with whom you would have a very good working relationship. Um, the, the two things that I would think about are one of the great things you get out of a clerkship is sort of this build out of your network. Um, judges, if they're doing the job right, uh, there's a lot of mentoring involved. And when it works really well, it's mentoring that lasts your whole life. And so if your interests are in doing kind of a more progressive kind of law with your career, then a judge who is part of that network is going, will, will give you, there's sort of a special benefit from that kind of a match. So that is one thing I would think about. Um, and then the other thing I would think about is there's something, depending on how the judge works, when you are a law clerk, part of your job may be speaking in your judge's voice. 
And I am a huge fan of working with people with whom you disagree about fundamental issues. One of the things I actually loved about private practice is it's still really bipartisan. And I had wonderful colleagues um, you know, across the aisle, and it, we had terrific working relationships. But I didn't have to speak in their voice all the time. And I think that is, is a very special kind of job you're being asked to do. And, and if you're, I think it is worth thinking about how comfortable you will be doing that. You're not just helping a judge, you, you, you're the judge's voice, like you're writing in the judge's voice. And I think that can be, um, it is just worth thinking about what that feels like for a year or two years. Judge Reeves really hit it on the head. This is, it's, it's a very intimate relationship you have with your law clerks. So whether they're conservative, liberal, or somewhere in the middle, it's also personality fit. So just, just keep that in mind regardless of how you view your potential employer's politics. <laughs> He said it, but yeah, okay. I defer to, I defer to that. <laughs> All right, other questions? So we have a question down here. Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. Whoever, I, well, I saw a hand over here, so. Uh, Who's guys, on first? Yeah, you guys decide. Okay. <laughs> here and then, and then there. Hello, my name is Walter. I'm a 1L at Northwestern uh, Law. My question is a two-parter for Judge Harris there, but if anyone else wants to opine, absolutely. Uh, first question, you mentioned that in conference, the importance of speaking up. Uh, I'd be curious to know what tactics you were referencing in terms of allowing others the room to speak up and making sure that all the uh, perspectives are expressed. And then second question, you also mentioned that, that uh, many uh, clerks, they don't realize quite what they're capable right, of and that they end up doing and exceeding. What do you think those clerks do right? I would imagine part of it is probably hard work but what other things do they do right and do well? Thank you. So on the first question, this is sort of what kinds of structures allow courts to take advantage of diversity. Um, you know, on the, there are two things about conference that we do at the Fourth Circuit that I think are really helpful. One is we don't talk about cases with each other until we get to conference, and that avoids um, the kind of a case where you could have two judges talking about a case and not including the third. It seems kind of unnecessarily formal maybe, but I think it's actually really helpful that everybody knows they are part of every discussion that is taking place about a case. And then the other thing we do, which I think is common but not always um, observed, you know, we go in order. Nobody votes sort of finally until we have all said what we think about the case. Um, and then we do sort of a second round if we feel we, this requires more discussion. And, and that part is a rule and then the norm that has built up around that is we all, tr you're supposed to say about as, everyone's supposed to take up about an equal amount of air time. And if that stops being the case, the, the senior judge will usually step in and say, yeah, we've, we've heard enough from you. Now let's move, right, which I think, again, is really valuable. It means that the person, you can't kind of filibuster or hijack the proceedings just because you feel strongly about a case. And there are just things that courts can do that maybe seem really obvious, but they really help um, new judges and judges who, who may feel that they are, you know, on a, at least on a particular panel, like, well, I'm the woman on the panel, and this is an abortion case or something, so here we go. And they, they can really help you feel much more comfortable about the dynamic because you're observing these formalities. So I'm, I'm sure there are a million things you can do like that, but those are the two that jump to mind for me. Um, and in terms of the clerks, it's a lot of it is about the hard work. Um, 
and, and just the demand. One thing that I think is really hard for law students, right? In law school, you get rewarded for being kind of provocative, right? Like you spot the issue and you have like a, a clever thought about it. Um, as a clerk, you get, it has to be correct, right? It, it, which is really different. It's, t it's a totally different way of thinking. And so I think the, the clerks who, who what I learned as a clerk and what my best clerks learn is that you're <coughs> capable of putting in the work and you're capable of not making mistakes, of getting it right. And you're capable of communicating, um, communicating in a way that is gonna be understandable to the litigants before you. I mean, that's who you're really, that's one of the audiences you're writing for. You're, you're capable of explaining things to people so that they will understand why this decision came out the way it did, which is a really important form of communication. Um, and, and so it's people who can kind of rise to that level that do the best, I think. Our circuit's a little different. When we conference, <clears throat> the junior judge goes first, and then the next junior, and then the, the senior judge. Uh, that's, all, that's the protocol. And we do talk quite a bit with each other before we, we get together. and and. For instance, if I'm on an island, I'd like to know about it before we write the opinion. So that we do exchange views, but you don't exclude the people on your panel when you're exchanging views. You, you, it's a lot of email traffic, and you include everybody on your panel exchanging views. One thing I've learned as, a, as an appellate judge is that you have to compromise. Um, a friend of mine told me that, this is Judge Schwartz, I don't know who Patty Schwartz, she said you need a friend in every case. And that, that it's really true, you have, to have, you have to convince at least one other judge to join your opinion. So many times you do have to write very narrowly or, or compromise, not compromise, but you have to, you, you have to compromise. And <laughs> I know it's not a word we like to use these days, but because everything's so binary, but as, as an appellate judge, you do have to be flexible and, 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 and willing to accommodate the views and really respect uh, everybody else's opinions. I talk to me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, and, that, and that's the uh, beautiful part of it. And, uh, but, I, but somebody did, uh, you do have to work hard. And I don't want to think, you, you, you do work hard. Uh, and, and, and it's a lot of work, and, and it can be fun work. So, so my goal is to you know, allow you to work hard, make it fun, make it enjoyable, uh, and all that. But, but no, I have to confer with myself. And, and, and there are times when we make errors. Uh, uh, and as I tell my law clerks and young lawyers and even older lawyers, everything in the law is excusable. There's a... Uh, excusable neglect and all that kind of stuff you can literally get out of, except for, and I think I've only found two occasions, missing the statute of limitations and missing your notice of appeal because it's really difficult to get out of those situations. So anything other than that, we can fix it. So be of a mind frame that if there's anything that we do that we happen to get wrong, because we are human, we will get some things wrong. We'll correct it because we do want the record to be correct. All right, we have a question. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm actually a non-traditional law student. I am a part-time uh, student in the evening division, and I actually have a full career where I work 40 hours a week. Um, and I know you guys recommended clerking and, and doing other things, but is there 
um, something that you would suggest that an evening student like myself would be able to do without having to do what every other advisor at a school tells us um, as quitting our job. So if you guys have any other suggestions that could help us advance our future career for when we do graduate, that would be helpful. I'll jump in and just say this uh, with respect to that answer. Uh, the clerkship process has sort of changed at least, uh, but, but there are many judges, state and federal level, with your law schools and others, uh, just the beginning foundation and others, have externship programs that you could do, and you can gain valuable, valuable uh, uh, experience by externing. Some, some schools give you credit for it. Uh, sometimes you may be able to take that as your summer job or during the, 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 the intermeaning, inter whatever y'all call it now, the, the sessions in between the first and the second test, uh, 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 semester. Uh, but externships might be an opportunity uh, for some of you. That way you're learning from the judge's current law clerks as well as the judge. So I would uh, uh, suggest that you consider those options as well. I do think that the state courts are a little more flexible. I mean, I, I know our in North Carolina, and I don't know a whole lot about other states, but we don't have any kind of uh, rigid, pro rigid protocol about how you apply for a clerkship or um, how many interns during the school year uh, uh, chambers might have, how many externships. It's all very flexible. So I, I guess I would suggest that it, it might be that a, that a state court would be open to um, an, an internship where you're doing the research and writing in the evenings. Uh, I guess this is most pertinent to Judge Reeves, but um, also to the circuit judges. I know for some judges, they think that being reversed is the worst possible thing that could happen, and other judges feel like, I just need to get on the page what I think, um, and not think so much about that, and I'm wondering how you approach that challenge. Uh, you, 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 you work to get it right, uh, knowing you know, that anything you do is subject to review. Uh, I do not believe you should be afraid of uh, uh, speaking the truth, looking at an issue, talking about an issue, uh, uh, but being consistent uh, with the law. And uh, I think that I think uh, district judges have a right to exercise their judicial muscle in talking about uh, particular issues and how the issue has been teed up to the particular judge. Uh, uh, as you, some of you may know, uh, for me, that's adding a lot of historical nuggets in any decision or any uh, on many decisions that I uh, that that I've crafted, talking about how we got to this point and what does that mean to get to the next point. And one of the things that you might uh, read and decipher from many of the decisions. Again, this is a judge who grew up in the 1970s who can only look back and see what Mississippi was, see what Mississippi was at the time that I was growing up, and making sure that my, because I claim Mississippi, and people say, ooh, yeah, Mississippi belongs to me. <laughs> and so, so I claim it, and, and I want Mississippi to be in my image. 
So I want to lay the record for it to be so. And if I'm reversed, I've at least said it. I was reversed twice while my nomination was pending for the circuit. <laughs> you just can't take it personally. It's life. You can get reversed and just do your best work and, and you can't worry about it. And there's a, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get reversed by the Supreme Court on a case that were cert was accepted. I was on a panel, and it wouldn't surprise me if this, my panel gets reversed. I mean, you do your best work. You give it an honest effort. And if you get reversed, you know, you, you learn from it. Oh, we have a lot of questions. Okay. Keep your hands up so we can, they can see you. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, we've talked a lot about the importance of network, I would imagine also in clerkships, but especially in becoming a judge. And I was wondering if you think that it's a good thing that it seems to work that way. And in an ideal world, what would be the, the ideal way to find qualified judges? Oh, I'll jump in on that. <laughs> because um, my network, quite honestly, was a very different one. So I had to run statewide in a state that has 7 million voters. Um, so absolutely all the professional connections I'd made during my career in North Carolina helped. I'm not going to deny that for a minute. But the true network, uh, the one that meant the most to me, I will say, is um, every place that I went during that year of campaigning, um, making a speech in front of an audience or having a community meeting, somebody, almost every time, somebody would stand up and say, well, I remember when you had a case in our county, and here's what happened as a result of what you did. And it just like, it was like the most fun thing ever about being a candidate. So I had, I had had a statewide legal practice, and it was my clients and the communities that I had partnered with over the past 30 years that was my network. And so that's part of, having that experience is part of why I um, am willing to defend electing judges um, because it was really, it's, all of these processes are political, but I only got to be a judge because I could go to the voters and the people. I would not be a judge if I, um, through an appointed process. So um, that, you know, it varies in every state, of course, but I, I think don't underestimate the power of the, uh, the clients, the people whose interests you represent, the people whose interests you advance. That's a type of network as well. There's no perfect way to pick judges. But, and, and there's a lot of problems with the way that federal judges are picked, and in many states there's a lot of problems with the way elected judges are, are, are chosen. But I, I, again, it's about what you do as a lawyer that's going to define your candidacy, whether it's for an elected position or an appointed position. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we talk about networking can have kind of a negative connotation. And I want to be clear, when I talk about networks and mentoring, too, I'm talking about people who know your work. That's the basis for the network. I am not a believer in, like, go to a cocktail party and meet some people, and maybe they'll help you be a judge. I don't think it works that way. My network was people I worked with. They knew my work. That's what they were prepared to talk about with the people who were picking judges. That's not, like, I, I'm proud of my network, and, I, and, and I, there, I'm sure there are better ways to pick judges. I have no doubt there are better ways to pick judges. But it ought to involve talking to people this candidate has worked with to see if their work is good. There's nothing wrong with that. And you also ought to ask, and if recent events make nothing else clear, they make this clear, you better ask, is this person kind? Is this person respectful? Is this person considerate? Does this person punch down? That turns out to be stuff we need to know about our judges. So the idea that you will have like a reputation that is important to the judicial selection process, I think is actually kind of a good thing. 
Hi, uh, Ian Quartz from North Carolina Central School of Law. I do have a question for each of you. Um, how do you view, because uh, each of you are served in similar courts but are still uniquely different, how do you view the role of judicial independence, especially in uh, a climate like today? Article three muscle. I think that judges have a duty to protect the Constitution. That's why it was written. That's why the judges were given that power. And I think the judges should not be timid on making sure that the rights of individuals, whether it's the 14th Amendment or Fifth Amendment or whatever amendment that is that empowers you, that you, st there needs to be a bulwark. I think we heard that earlier. And you need to make sure uh, I just think the judges have that unique role and that unique responsibility to make sure that we all are we, we take an oath and, 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 and that oath says, I will protect and defend the Constitution. And that's, and that's who you're uh, protecting and defending at all times. Look, judicial independence and the rule of law have never been more important. And they've never been, I'll stop there. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just say I, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that as law students and really for most of the public, when you think about courts, you think first about the Supreme Court, right? Like this is the court we all know that gets the most public attention that we study the most. I mean, I think what I wish for law students is that they could like just walk into my courthouse in Richmond just one day, watch a panel at work. It, it, it works. Like, it's not just a concept. It really works. I mean, it still knocks my socks off. I, you know, you, you want to get the right panel, the right mix of cases, but usually once every week in Richmond, I'm sitting on a panel, and we're hearing four cases, and I'm like, I'll be damned. We did justice in four cases, and it's amazing. Like, I, 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 I'm at a loss for words. Like, being part of that process, watching, like, judges do their job, you know, uh, do the job and do justice. And I, I, I'm so passionate about this that I am literally at a loss for words. And I worry that if all you're watching is the Supreme Court, you're really missing the picture. Um, and I get, like, that's an important part of the picture. Don't get me wrong. Um, but boy, I, I feel like I should be running like R&R &R buses in and out of Richmond so that students who are kind of dispirited about what they've gotten themselves into can see how this still works in practice. It's, it is a sight to see to watch some really good judges do the job really well. So I think that judicial independence is something um, that we do have to fight to maintain. It should, it should be you know, just automatic guarantee, but it's not. Um, and, and it's not surprising in a politics where in North Carolina, the legislators are threatening to impeach judges that don't rule in their favor. So that kind of makes you feel like, that's why I say we have to fight for the, the importance and the value of an independent judiciary. But then I would also say, I think now being on the inside uh, for the past seven weeks, um, <laughs> that, the, that the public's perception that um, you know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican is what's driving what's going on with the court, that that's a misperception and I don't, and I don't know that there's an easy way to, to uh, dissuade people from that. Um, but th there's actually a lot more going on, if you will. Um, and, and I think 
that we can do more work as lawyers, as a legal profession, in being very clear and specific about what judicial independence means and what are the structures and systems and practices that make it possible, and, and that that's really valuable. Uh, hello, my name is Julie Preciado. I'm a 2L at Willamette in uh, Oregon. And um, I had a couple of questions, so you can kind of answer one or, or however you want. Um, First, for Justice Earls, you mentioned uh, you really wanted to see, this is, these are about clerkships, so if someone's applying as a clerk, you want to see how this would align with their goals, and so I was just kind of thinking, aside from mentorship and aside from improved writing and how I think somebody mentioned uh, a good opinion is similar to a good uh, brief, so aside from those benefits, what, what would you like to hear communicated uh, as far as how this would align with our future goals? Um, and another question I had for, uh, ju uh, for Judge Restrepo, you mentioned um, that you, so typically, oftentimes, clerks come straight out of law school right into a clerkship. Um, but you like to have two years of experience first. So what would be the benefit of um, having a clerkship two years out for the clerk's point of view and maybe from your point of view? And finally, if you, anybody has any insight as far as if you have done an externship, um, a different, would you, is there a strategic reason or is there anything you can think about about if you were going to be then getting a clerkship, would you want to go to a different level? Like if you were at a trial court level, do you want to go to court of appeals or do you want to go to Supreme Court or would you want to switch systems from state to federal? If anyone had any uh, feedback or insight on that. And thank you so much. Uh, sure. So I, I think. In part, I just want to know that, that, you've, that they've thought about it, right? That, because I have this sense that people just hear, okay, the, the thing you're supposed to do is be a, be a clerk, so I'm applying because I want to be a clerk. And, and, I, and I want to have folks who have a, because I feel like that's what will help them have passion for doing the job well, is if they understand how what, how what they will learn in the clerkship will um, contribute to their next career, and, or the next step in their career. So let me give some examples. I had people apply uh, who, their big career goal was ultimately to run for public office, which is great, and I love that people want to run for public office, but, but my job is putting them in a, an office for a year or two, reading cases and writing um, bench memos and, and opinions, that's actually gonna nowhere really help them run for public office. Um, it's not policy analysis, it's not out in the community meeting people. So, um, and it doesn't mean that you have to want to be a litigator, right? So maybe you think, well, being a clerkship is, is clearly most tied to people who are then going to litigate in the courts. Um, one of my current clerks, her interest is Indian law. We don't do Indian law in the North Carolina Supreme Court, but she had a vision of how this experience learning all these different areas of law would help her with the communities that she ultimately wants to represent as a tribal council and that she needed to know these different areas of state law in order to be effective and so that's what i mean about just having us having a vision of why it will be useful from my selfish perspective having a lawyer come clerk for me is great because this is somebody with real world experience so that that's what i get out of it and for the lawyers, I think it, look, they've worked now, and I think they, they, they're in a position now to understand the law from the, the practice perspective, and then they get to see what goes on in, in, in chambers. So I think they get a lot out of it. Um, and law firms don't hold it against them. Law firms are happy to take them back. A lot of people, quite frankly, after two years at a firm, might want to transition and do something else. So it's a nice exit ramp. So I think there are advantages both for the, the clerk and, and for me uh, to have worked. And one of, some of my best clerks have 
come to me after working for seven or eight years at a public defender's office. So, you know, there's, there are a lot of ways to get to this clerkship. And you should understand that all, I think all clerkships are great, but they're very different. Clerking for me when I was a district court judge is very different than clerking for me on the circuit. So please understand that when you're applying for these clerkships, that the experience will be very different based on the judge and what kind of work that judge is doing. Hi, my name is Bill Green. I'm a 3L at Notre Dame Law School. Uh, my question, and all of you uh, practiced for a long time and now being judges and seeing uh, arguments raised in court, my question is what distinguishes a good or great advocate from a bad one uh, and a good and great argument from a, a bad one or an okay one? Thanks. Just one thing lawyers don't do well is listen. And, and the, the best lawyers answer the question, they listen to the question, they listen to the witness on cross, they listen to the witness on direct, and they actually engage the witness appropriately. So I would really encourage you folks to work on your listening skills. It will make you a much better lawyer. And I, I can't tell you how frustrating it is when you're asking lawyers questions at argument and they're not listening to you, they have an agenda, and they're not listening to what you're asking. So one, one my tip would be to really work on your listening skills. And, and, and we do uh, take briefs in the uh, district court level. Your writing is absolutely important, too, as well. If you get to the point where you can edit your own writing, you, 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 you're halfway there. So write, 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 write. And that's all I can say. That, that, that's the best thing because you, most of your stuff is in written form. You don't get to trial often. You don't get to argue cases. It's that brief that you've written that, that we see. I would add to that what will probably seem really obvious, but surprise, it's not. Um, you need to really prepare before you come in to argue. Like, you know, I hear when we go to Richmond, I hear 12 or 16 cases in a sitting, and it is consistently the case that I know some of the cases better than the lawyer who's arguing, and I'm like, I don't get it. You've got one case, I've got 16. How come I know what's in the record? You have got to be prepared. And the other reason is because otherwise you'll be really nervous. If you're not prepared, it's really scary because you don't know what's coming at you and whether you'll be able to answer it. If you're prepared, you might still be nervous, but in a different way because you'll know just this is your great advantage as an advocate. You should know your case better than the judges. That gives you a huge edge in oral argument. And why every advocate doesn't take advantage of that is a mystery to me, a continuing source of mystery. Also, if you don't know the answer because you didn't listen to me and you didn't prepare, then say you don't know the answer. Do not guess. For the love of God, don't guess. <laughs> because, right, like sometimes it's not even 50-50. Sometimes your odds of getting it right are even slimmer than that, and some judge is going to know you got it wrong, and then you're done. You might as well just sit down, because no one wants to hear one more word you have to say. Uh, my 10-second answer was going to be very similar, but know the law. Um, that Seriously, you know, research your issue till the end and know the law. That's, that's what makes good lawyers. Can I just say, and this, this applies for whatever you do in your life, and if, for those of you who might end up being elected, um, who shares my deep frustration at watching a Senate judicial nominations hearing when they ask a question and they don't listen to the witness so they don't know that there's a good follow-up question that they could ask? Um, it's deeply frustrating, um, and it is a lost opportunity in so many levels um, to explore these really important issues um, with the nominees. Um, so I, you know, the... the the bad side of having this great job of being up here and getting to, to, to talk with these incredible judges 
um, is that I actually also have to say that it's over um, and that you know we could go on all evening um, with questions and, and conversation about the role of judges in our society. Um, but we're going to switch um, uh, to uh, uh, the role of the Constitution. We have one of um, our nation's foremost advocates for the Constitution, who you all know very well, and I'm not going to introduce him because um, he will be introduced by Ava. Um, but I do want to ask you um, to give a big round of applause and a thank you to these incredible judges. <laughs>